This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. Today's episode is with ex-international rower, Kath Bishop. She has won world titles and been to three Olympics, including the 2004 Games in Athens, where she won a silver medal. But results are not what she would like to be judged or defined by. In fact, just starting her introduction as ex-international rower already wrongly labels what she is about. In her terrific book, The Long Win, Kath looks at winning from a longer term view and the conversation opens up many questions around what really defines success. Kath's three C's of clarity, constant learning and connection form some of the framework around our chat, but also her experiences as an athlete in a high performance program and in her career as a diplomat working in conflict affected parts of the world. Is it all about coming first, winning that gold, delivering that tournament title, or should we be putting far more emphasis and understanding around the longer term as well? We chatted in Cass Garden on a beautiful blue sky day and opened it all up with Kath posing me the first question around reframing a gold medal. I was listening to your roundup of the last episode where you were talking about gaining confidence from having won and the fact that that on the CV opens doors. Yeah. And gives you perhaps also that inner confidence. And that's really interesting to me because I just think, what about all the other people who did exactly the same things, who had the same approach that you started off with before you won? But it's almost like that then validated it. And I would love us to be able to validate a healthy, positive performance approach, not just because of the results. I think it brings results, but obviously not everybody can win all the time. And so I wanted us to think about how we frame winning in a way that actually helps us to reach our potential whatever level that might be and to recognize that sometimes we use winning in a way that holds us back sometimes we're so obsessed with the results the outcomes color everything that we review it actually stops us learning so it was to say yeah have a look at our obsession with winning and and perhaps we're not always aware of how it's playing out and the impact it has and to think about whether we should reframe it it's very important for you you know I can I can see that and I and it resonates with me as well so was it as simple as a silver medal in Athens yes and no uh that was a key point that left me thinking how do I make sense of this and how should I kind of put that to bed or how should I interpret that how should I talk about it what's the story I'm taking with me and I suppose for a while I was thinking about is it me coming to terms with um having a silver medal And actually, you know, I started off thinking about a book that was about people who come second and how how it feels and, you know, this runner-up experience, because, again, I see that everywhere. And so many of us, we have interviews for jobs and we're the, you know, we're in the top two, we're down to the last two, and then we don't quite get it. It's a very common experience. I was talking to a colleague the other day whose child was hoping to be head girl and she's deputy head and I was like that's such a classic experience in life and Brendan Rogers recently was talking about how those who haven't won who've been the runner-up or haven't got selected are the ones that come through later so I was already really fascinated in that angle but what I found increasingly was that I was talking and coming across lots of people who'd won who were saying well it wasn't that great or I feel really empty It wasn't what I thought. I felt quite depressed afterwards. And I thought, hang on a minute. So I'm getting obsessed with what happens with those coming second because we've missed out on this first position. But let's look at that first position we've missed out on. That doesn't look so great either. I mean, you would expect that 
the gold medalists would be happiest, sort of silver medalist second and bronze medalist third. And I always find the research around that quite interesting that actually um, the silver medalists are often agonising, yes, they're one below. Um, gold medalists are, are, depending on their expectations, sometimes quite flat, a little bit of relief, a sense of, is that it? Bronze medalists are often really happy because they're thinking, I'm so glad I didn't come fourth. That's interesting, isn't it? It's nothing to do with the colour of the medal. It's to do with our expectations, the power of our expectations, what we think is success and how we compare uh, ourselves to other targets or other people. And therefore, we can do something about those expectations. And that's what I wanted to then start probing more in. I thought, I can't just look at the runners-up because there's something here about winning that uh, isn't sitting right with me. And if winning isn't working for the winners either, this goes beyond who's come second or third or those who aren't on the podium, who we don't talk about anymore and discard. Um, So it grew. It grew over time and it grew in different contexts that I thought when I got further away from the sports world, I would see it less but I didn't see it any less. It was occurring in every other environment that I've been in since, whether it was diplomacy or now working in businesses um, or as a parent with, with children now coming into the education system. So it, it was sort of in my head for probably, you know, over 10 years really before I started writing about it, trying to work it out. It's quite yeah. a long story. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's fascinating, really. And there's so many different strands that I'm picking up there because I, I wasn't an athlete on the field. I was a coach at the Olympics, but I felt flat after you know, and, and I think it's hard to sometimes put it into a, a sentence that makes any sort of sense around your feelings post the final whistle in my in my case, that everything seemed um, a little bit less meaningful. So there's that. I guess one question I, I've got for you, what happens if, you, if that silver had been a gold? Well, we can't do a randomised control trial, <laughs> so that's a little bit tricky. Um, I do wonder about that. I do wonder whether... I, I actually think... I would still have been thinking, well, what does this mean? I was so acutely aware of having not performed or come anywhere near medals in the first two Olympics, how that felt. I don't think I'd have forgotten that. I was very acutely aware of other people in the team who were deemed to be clearly of less value because they didn't win a medal and who left and who still feel that um, and who have perhaps little connection with the sport. And I and yet, for me, were just brilliant athletes that I learnt huge amounts from. And, you know, they were injured at the wrong time. The crew didn't gel at the right time. All sorts of things beyond their control meant that it didn't happen for them. And yet I know they had the same potential as me and, and others who did go on to medal. So that's that sort of, you know, at the time I was always really uncomfortable with that. So I don't think that would have changed. I mean, it is, I, I almost think the silver medal was the, was the best result for me to stay curious, to almost have the confidence to think about it. I think, you know, if I'd come fourth, I'd have shut up and not felt I ever had a voice to talk about it. So That's interesting. Yes, I'm, I'm grateful in a way that I had a result that kept me curious, um, but also just enough to have the confidence to, you know, to, yeah, to keep, keep thinking and challenging and talking to other people and exploring. Yeah, because you had one... Um, you know, world titles 2003 with Catherine Granger you know you won the world title in, in Milan and if we reverse back a little bit 96 was your first Olympic Games and you were in the very successful well it was gaining momentum wasn't it at the time performance program for GB rowing but there hadn't been a female gold medalist I think if that's yeah, right in that's saying right. that and men, the men's program dominated pretty much all the thinking going around in, in GB rowing. And Jürgen Grobler, I think, was yep. his performance director at the time, so he would have overseen he everything. Was head coach for the men's team. Right, okay. 
And so in 96, um, you placed 7th, and then in Sydney, 9th. Now, something happened then going into the next cycle where you re-evaluated what what it's all about on a number of levels, both professionally and also by seeking sports psych help. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, There was, I, I mean, arguably Sydney was a big turning point in me actually starting to reflect for myself and not just accept that the environment within which I was training was the best high performance environment possible if you like I think people often say to me what's it like to be in a high performance environment as if, as if it is a homogenous concept <laughs> and I was starting to realize that you can get different high performance environments and that I ought to think about how I contribute to the environment I'm in as well as how others coaches etc are creating an environment for us and I could see that I wasn't thriving in that environment and I wanted to understand why and how much that was my responsibility very largely it was my responsibility but also accept that you know others had an impact on that as well coming ninth in Sydney was was a massive low point of course it was a massive learning point now in hindsight as well um, because I had done everything that was asked of me I had trained you know as hard as possible in that sort of narrow sense of performances who's the toughest I had gone down that line you know, hook, line, sinker, and being the toughest person and the last person standing and, and all of that kind of stuff. And it hadn't worked for me in performance terms. And so I knew that um, I was missing something because I wasn't really delivering at a level that I still felt capable of and I had glimmers of at different times. So I was trying to work that out and I took a year out after Sydney. I retired in a way. I was very crushed self-belief-wise and you know of course getting some distance from the sport helps you then to start to think about it and it was the time when sports psychology was starting to become available to olympic um sports and we had a very young chris shambrook arrive um who then stayed for quite a few olympiads with the rowing team and um he'd come just before sydney so i'd started kind of talking to him but still very much developing thinking and he was a key part in coming back with a different mindset to have an attempt at a third olympics uh you know and he i can remember him saying early on what are you going to gain if you come back and you don't win i'm thinking oh my goodness that's can't say that can you um and him being sort of really calm and rational and saying, well, you know, let's just look at the evidence. You haven't so far. Um, actually, the evidence on any Olympic athlete uh, competing, the odds are poor. You look at the sort of 10,000 plus excellent athletes that turn up on day one and only sort of 300, just over 300 get a gold medal. Um, you know, if, if one was a mathematician, statistician, you wouldn't be betting your house on, mm. on anybody, really. Um, there are so many things that can go wrong beyond your, your own control. And, and, you know, we laughed about it and it released, it released the whole piece that you could think about, well, what, what else am I getting from this? And that opened up a rich vein of sense of this elite sporting journey has more than a medal at stake. However much I still want it, didn't mean I didn't want it to ask that question. It just kind of enabled me to start to think about what else am I gaining from this? What else am I developing, exploring that I'll take with me into the rest of my life um, that's positive, that I can invest in, that's also within my control to improve, whether it's managing pressure, working with others, looking after myself, recovering well in difficult times, all of those sorts of skills. And of course, by then having more of a focus on those areas, they all feed performance as well. So it was, you know, getting into that virtuous circle of 
performance and culture. And at that time also you, you were thinking about life post-rowing and started your journey in the diplomatic service. Mm. Did that help, do you think, that your mind was taken up with something else as well as rowing? helped enormously uh, just to get perspective on things uh, I had felt like it was the be all and end all that the world would end if my little yellow pointy boat didn't go faster than the rest of the world backwards on a lake somewhere and you know that's how it had felt when Sydney went so badly wrong um, and so just to get perspective that there are really big serious issues out there far beyond that was just such a relief and I think a lot of uh, athletes are feeling that at the moment they're very grateful to have the opportunity to compete because we realize there were bigger things that have happened in the world over the last couple of years um, with the with the pandemic and so you know that was a really healthy approach to have a bigger perspective within which the pursuit of excellence in rowing could then sit didn't mean I wasn't trying as hard it just gave me something around it that had previously been missing you know it also gave me some self-belief back that I could operate in another world um, that yeah you know I had there, there were other things I could do because you know I was still really reeling from that massive failure that I had felt very much connected with who I was i.e you know I had failed therefore I was a failure and so I was still separating out those identities and it was massively helpful then to have something else I could say look I have got an identity in a different area here um, so in so many levels it was helpful and the fact that you know life would go on a job would go on after Athens as well whatever happened I think in in a lot of other sports and I'm thinking in rugby and in my world that it's changed a little bit but if a player wanted to do something on top of their professional career often they would be seen as well that's because they can see that they're not quite making it in rugby and or the coach would tell them to to stop messing around and concentrate on on your full-time job which is rugby yet those those players those athletes would often tell you retrospectively that that gave them grounding and actually made them better at what they were doing did you have any of those issues in the first two cycles of the olympics where you wanted to do other things and yet the environment the culture didn't necessarily think that was a good idea i did throughout um and yeah there was this fear that it would distract me or us athletes if we did something else which I, again I, don't, I, I think there is a lot more research around this being really important but there is that there's often a control sense isn't there in the sporting environment that the you know a, a coach wants to control a result wants to be able to deliver something their own jobs depend on it uh, and there can be that almost attempt then to over control and a sense that yeah you're not committed certainly if you're spending time doing something else so although I was given you know, some more space. And I mean, well, I took a year out. Uh, and so then that meant I stepped out of the funding program. So it actually gave me the freedom then that when I stepped back in, I could do so a little bit more on my own terms because I didn't initially have any funding. So I had to keep working part time. And, and that, that was all really helpful just in having a bit more autonomy, which is really motivational to make things work. And yes, there was this, this fear that somehow you weren't you weren't a true athlete or you weren't committed and and that played on me again from that identity sense am I truly committed which was ridiculous to question that and that was a sort of waste of emotional energy that either a coach or I was spending time defending that or questioning that um, when it was only ever helping I, it was always really clear what the pecking order was and you know if sessions overran you know the, the rowing always took priority and it and it always 
encroached on anything else I did. And I think some attitudes are changing. I think they need to change more, more radically. I think we still see it as an add-on rather than actually this is as important. Yeah, you had a, a, a fairly extreme example in your book that you gave of one athlete that you'd spoken to, I think, that wasn't allowed to get on the on the other line on the end of the phone call to his wife that was having cesarean I think because it clashed with a a gym session yeah um, and, and, I, and I suppose that speaks volumes about the culture and one of the the strap line you've got loads of um, takeaways from your book but one of the ones that resonated with me was the ch- challenge the status quo in our in our cultures um, and I've got a question I'm going to throw at you here that now you would if you were an athlete going into a going into a culture now I think knowing what you know you'd feel that you can stand up and and question it if somebody reads if an athlete or an employee reads your book and and they also agree exactly the same and they think do you know what I need to stand up to what's going on in my culture but they're not at the top of the tree so they're not the ones that can make a decision what advice would you give them to be able to do or start that change Yes, it's a good question. It's one that actually in organisations talk about a lot. Um, There's a piece that leaders are are responsible for creating an environment in which others can speak up. And I I don't often see that as a leadership objective. I see targets, I see all sorts of metrics, but I don't see creating an environment where others can speak up and if for me that's exactly a a kind of not a management objective then a leadership objective how are you even knowing if this is possible for others in in your organization so there is definitely a huge leadership role coming back to an individual it is incredibly difficult I think it's about you know firstly recognizing that there's something that you want to challenge so it's having that mindset where you identify it and then you need to think about how can you discuss that? Who is it safe to discuss that with? Maybe you discuss it with a peer first. Finding like-minded at whatever level in the hierarchy so that you can start to think about it and become confident talking about it. I think when we're sometimes on our own and we feel a little bit isolated, it's then really hard to do it in a way that perhaps you know, doesn't come across as aggressive. Um, and so it's something, you know, I think we need to understand what's going on, you know, note it, talk about it with whoever you can inside or outside the organisation. Again, if you've got a mentor, this is where we need those support networks, a coach, um, you know, a buddy, somebody who's helped you when you joined the organisation, somebody who was there, you know, for your induction, somebody who was part of the interview panel who, who saw the, you know, the potential that you're bringing to the organisation. We, we need to reach out to those networks to have that conversation and say look this is what I'm saying and, and this is why I don't think it's working and, and to then explore what, how else could it be done why is it happening like this and then I think we can start to sort of spread the ideas so it, you, you start a mini movement mm. if you like mm. rather than thinking it's just between me and my boss I think broaden it do you think just as we're, we're I can see a couple of magpies and we're in Cathy's garden in North London so if you hear the background it's actually very soothing you know and we've got the sunshine and um, one thing that you talked about there early on was um, it's not getting measured that ability for people to fit, feel safe and open mm. what, why do you think that? So I think we have an obsession with metrics and we like things that are easy to measure mm. and um, therefore we go for um, quantitative metrics and not qualitative things because they are harder to measure. And I think that's the culture focus requires us to shift. 
um, human stories tell us much more about what's going on at a deeper level. And I think, again, in, in many organisations, there's a realisation about this. And again, events of, of recent times have forced us all to stop back and realise that we're all having a different experience of the pandemic or we're all having a different experience of our jobs, regardless of, of that. Um, so seeing a way of measuring things as not something that just has to go in a spreadsheet, but actually more about the human stories is a big shift that I think we're in the middle of, you know, with, with companies at, at either extreme end, but lots trying to understand this in the middle. And, and sport is very similar, that there are those who are just measuring medals still, and then there are those that, that are sort of starting to understand, actually, it, it matters the story that an athlete has on the way, the story that an athlete takes from their medal or lack of medal, that matters because that actually affects whether they stay for another Olympiad. It affects whether they inspire the next generation and have a good story to tell. Um, That really matters. And I'd love to see us be much bolder about how we, you know, measure success as a nation. Thinking about it's not okay if you have someone like Amy Tinkler in the gymnasts team who won a brilliant bronze medal in Rio saying, I would give it back because of the horrific experiences of abuse um, that led up to that. that. We can't count that as a, as a positive medal that, w- that we want to see replicated. Her performance is brilliant, but you know, the, the kind of route, that's not something we want another gymnast to go through. So unless we capture the stories, it's really, really hard for us to understand and, and measure success. So yeah, we need to get beyond the tick box because it's often that obsession with metrics that, that kills the performance anyway because we're missing out on things. We all know in sport that we can't neglect communication or collaboration or recovery or mindset. So, you know, what, why wouldn't we accept culture and developing a psychologically safe environment as part of those areas that we explore uh, in order to improve performance? So it, it's a shift in mindset in terms of what we're measuring We've been simplistic, I think, in what we measure and in how we, you know, again, I think it's a huge pressure on coaches that their job relies on a medal that they can't control and will have all sorts of external factors uh, that impact on it. Actually, we should be measuring very different things for coaches. Do you think it's okay then to put that as a, as a priority, the importance of that, creating that? And, it, and it's become, I've talked about this previously it's become um, a hot topic psychological safety and you know and mm. um, and it's important for people to feel that they're safe to be or their authentic best if it hasn't got a hard number around it do you still see that as something that should be absolutely at the top of the list as far as wrapped into any sort of funding with UK sport or in wider professional sport that that's a priority that even though it requires a different way to look at the metrics because it hasn't got a hard number. It's not a GPS unit. Where do you sit on that? And how would you put your argument across to the the guys that are implementing the policies around funding to ensure that that is a real priority? I'd love us to be developing that much more seriously. Um, again, I just think the medal on itself doesn't have a meaning that lasts beyond the lovely picture on the podium unless we're looking at this stuff and I don't think we should be funding individual moments it worries me sometimes some of the the sort of language the UK sport language around inspirational moments I don't think that's enough I want to know what's of lasting value both for the athlete the coach the whole team involved and for those watching I think we're not very ambitious by saying well it's all it's 
only what happens at the, the top of the podium that, that matters. Because we see all of these sort of stories of dissatisfaction afterwards. You know, it, it it's, reminds me of that Everest analogy that more, more climbers die on the way down than on the way up. I mean, why would we advocate that kind of approach that it doesn't matter what happens afterwards? It clearly does. I think that there's a really exciting area for us to explore a much greater impact that we could have with sport. And again, the, the, the heroic narratives of this all-conquering superstar on the top of the podium, actually, you know, people feel disconnected from that. They feel, well, I can't be like that. And yet, that's not how that athlete feels. They had a completely normal upbringing and all sorts of ups and downs along the way. And it doesn't help them. And it doesn't help the spectator. And it doesn't help participation to, to, to be improved at all. We've, you know, we've developed a disconnect between um, elite sport and participation that we seem to feel is um, the only way it could be done without exploring. Well, OK, m- maybe if we tell some different stories, maybe if we looked at this differently, we might get some different impact. Um, we seem to see it as somehow self-fulfilling that that's the way it has to be so I think we're very lacking in in ambition here I think we could think about what's that bigger social responsibility that we have in sport that we accept grassroots sport to be much more involved in I don't know why we've disconnected performance sport from having a much greater social responsibility I mean we do see a lot more athletes now starting to to appreciate this it's it's always been stronger in the US, um, but we have the sort of Marcus Rashfords now, but lots of others within communities starting to understand that. And, and for me, that's where the kind of growth and excitement in terms of the impact of a high performance sporting world can get to. And, and that's going way beyond the medal table. In my head, I've got about half a mile from where we are here. Uh, um, a young man that I used to mentor talked to me about how... He, um, an Arsenal footballer came into the school to talk about his journey. He had come from the local area and worked his way from the academy into the first team. And the guy I was mentoring said, I don't, it makes no difference to me that this Arsenal football, I'm never going to play for Arsenal. I, I want an electrician to come in here that's got a full-time job and tell me about that and how I get, how I get that. And that, that, that will almost put them off, you know, that, uh, because it's too much. I wonder whether, whether we're creating a, a situation now where we've become so successful on the medals that it will put people off thinking, well, there's a, there is a disconnect there between what I can achieve and what I'm seeing. So what's the point in even participating? I think it's crazy that we also only have the medalists who come in and speak in assemblies I'm, I'm deeply yeah. uncomfortable I write about that um, that brilliant people I trained with um, but you know for, the, for them for a whole host of reasons often beyond their control the, the medal didn't happen but they have such a great story to tell so yes we need to bring in a much wider range of role models I think the thing is we want to see athletes for who they are and not as this heroic superhero and therefore, we want access to, to, to kind of hearing the true story and for athletes not to kind of tell this polished version of, oh, it's a little bit tricky, but then I've got this gold medal and you can do that too. Um, so I think we need to allow athletes almost to kind of tell the narrative about the challenges they've had. The Naomi Osaka stories of, you know, I've won a Grand Slam and I've suffered depression afterwards. Um, the reality of that. So we see them as the vulnerable, normal, flawed human beings that they are like us rather than the superheroes. So there's a bit about the narrative that athletes themselves, you know, whether they feel free to kind of tell their real story and also making sure we don't just send superheroes in. I think it's also I, I don't want to pressure athletes that they I mean, not everyone is, is going to kind of take a a stance like Marcus Rashford but 
most athletes can have a massive impact just within their own clubs, within their communities, on a really local level. And often that's a source I've found of confidence for athletes to feel, you know, on a day when you're not, the training hasn't gone so well, actually, you know, you just go and see kids enjoying your sport for the first time and realise, do you know what? that's what sport's about it's about healthy lives getting others involved um and i I always sort of enjoy being reminded of that the kind of i fell in love with my sport with no aspirations to be an olympian and i'm so glad i did because the joy of being on the water is is actually what enabled me to to do it for all of those hours um and so actually just being reminded that it's a real privilege to do that it's it's one of the best kind of release releases of tension for an athlete do you think it helped then for you because you've said you said that you weren't a particularly able um, kid at PE lessons growing up and you got into rowing um, in a kind of mm. around the around the house's way that mm. someone, you know, you filled in a spot um, mm. to when you were at university and that got your bug for yeah. rowing that, that stayed with you then. Um, I'm interested really to know that, you know, that we, we do put an onus on you know academies and putting lots of resources into people going up and looking to specialize early and the pressure starts to come on that you've come about it and achieved success in a very very different way and I wonder if that kind of protected you perhaps in those early moments. So I think that I, I am so grateful for having encountered the sport in a, in a really unpressured way and I talked to lots of teachers uh, sort of, you know, since, since the book's come out who are sort of tearing their hair out over the pressure to detect talent at an ever earlier age and really the, the nonsense that goes with that, the fact that we lose a lot of children out of sport and we don't really know the rate of their development anyway. So we're making kind of judgments on a really, really narrow um, set of information, metrics again, um, and we are kind of losing the point of just having people, you know, really active and involved in a range of activities because over-specialisation is often really unhealthy for, for athlete development later anyway. Um, so, I, you know, it was an unusual way to come in that I think um, enabled me to kind of, I suppose, see it also as, as an adult rather than having been sort of forced into it or pushed um, at an earlier age. So I could kind of make some initial decisions there um, myself. I, I mean, I look now at systems and think I probably wouldn't get into any of these talent development programs <laughs> <laughs> and how lucky I was and how I think we're probably still missing people in our desire to to find talent. Um, we don't allow those sort of quirky other paths to, to come in, for people to come in and, and actually just to focus on people enjoying the sport first and foremost. Yeah, because if I'm if I'm looking at your kind of journey, your critical path as um, <laughs> it, it gets called, you've I don't know if you'd call it luck. You know that you 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 went into a sport in a, a roundabout way that a conversation with a sports psychologist had a pretty profound effect on you going into your change your your outlook on on performance, and then the silver has then driven a lot of what you've done in the future. Um, do you but do you think it, some of this is happenstance or luck? Or do you believe that it's come about and, you know, that all of this is, has happened for a reason and allowed you to um, be your authentic self? Oh, that's a deep question. I, I think I'm really clear I could have made some other choices. And, you know, it, it's taken a long time to recover from that 10 years of being an elite athlete and all of the, the challenges that went through that period. So I often think, gosh, that, you know, that's affected me that, I, you know, I'm still making sense of it. So I think it's really, um, 
that's that desire to make sense of what I experienced. That's the driver here. And um, because it was so um, extreme and, you know, at times, yeah, hard and tough and, and there wasn't a way of really understanding it at the time, you know, that stayed with me. Um, I'm a curious person. I have, you know, that's, that's perhaps also led me to be in lots of different um, situations where I then get a different perspective on it. So I also think having that multidisciplinary approach if you like has helped me to make sense and to get the confidence if I'd stayed in sport I don't think I'd have had the confidence to write the book it was only by seeing these things happen in a different environment where I was sort of less at the center of it in the way that I was as a as an athlete winning a medal that then comes with all these judgments and assumptions and and starting to understand how culture plays out in business organizations it gave me a, a kind of way of seeing the theory and practice in a different world that I could then step back and look at the sports world and go okay some of these things that I felt I couldn't challenge I really should have needed to have and now want to and it gives me a different lens on making sense of it you talk about the three c's yeah um and we'll come come to the three C's, which I which I you know I think is brilliant. But also another C that you talk about is the concept of cathedral thinking. Mm. Um, would you mind explaining perhaps to the listener a little bit more about that and why you think it could be a real valuable tool for us as society, in wider society? So as I started researching, interviewing, talking, thinking more about winning and success, time became a really critical concept. Is it just the next win? And quite often in sport, you know, there's that whole mantra, isn't there? You're only as good as your next race. You're only as good as your, you know, that, that's sort of quite short termism. Often in terms of funding, those sorts of things. Again, if you don't perform this year, that's it. You're off the program, you're off the funding. So there's often this pressure of time. Um, whereas, you know, again, in a sport like rowing, it's an endurance sport. We have the capacity to, to go on beyond one Olympiad. And you see that people often don't because, again, they've just been too, too pushed, too you know push too hard you can't take a break um and you know why couldn't we actually develop over that slightly longer period why do we push ourselves because actually it often breaks us uh in in sporting terms so time became really interesting to me and how some coaches now are starting to think over over the longer term and think you know again i spoke to some coaches um actually in in the netherlands some rowing coaches who were looking to help their athletes have a year out wow that's so great because they recognize that they would have a better chance of keeping them for for two olympiads or more if they did that and that it was actually going to help their kind of mental health um and so yeah the, I, I then started to think much more about how time plays a, 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 a part of what we think success is and often even whether it's our careers you know, outside of sport where there's this sense of I've got to get the next promotion, I've got to get the next thing without thinking, do you know what, I'm going to be working for another 20 years, 30 years, you know, goodness knows how long these days. Um, so actually that next promotion, maybe it's not that kind of life critical that you've a failure if you've not got to this point by this age. All of those sorts of pressures that actually often stop us being at our best, distract us, um, don't help us to thrive. So cathedral thinking is this concept that um, those who built the great cathedrals in um, took centuries you know in Europe all of those wonderful cathedrals um, in the sort of um, started off in 1400s and went on for for several centuries and they have actually in um, Barcelona 
to today the Gaudi Cathedral, don't you? That's I think possibly going to be completed somewhere later this decade. That's been going <laughs> yeah. on for forever. Um, so you start something knowing that you can't complete it. Um, you have a vision that others can buy into, that the next generation can take on, but they will shape it in their own way. Um, it's very much used now in the context of environmental protection because we can't fix it. We can't beat it. We can't win at protecting the environment. We have to think about it in a different way that enables us to accept that we're doing things now that will have an impact on the next generation. And therefore, we maybe we should think about the next generation and the next generation after that um, when we're considering how we treat the environment now. So I just find that so um, that extra perspective so helpful when you're feeling pressured over that next short-term deadline or target that you know I now often in the coaching work I do say well what of all of those things that are on your to-do list overwhelming you at the moment are going to matter in a year's time five years time ten years time and people sort of go yeah actually yeah well, I don't really need to do that. Um, yeah, this is the thing that really matters. And it's often not the one that's got the kind of deadline screaming at you. But that's the one where you should put your time. And I think even as a, you know, putting that back into the sports world, again, to think about what's that experience you want to have of sport, not just as an elite athlete, but after that as well. It goes on and allowing athletes to not fall out of sport just because you're not on the team anymore, but actually finding that you know, often once we're in sport, you're, you're connected to it, aren't you, forever? And, and, and thinking about ways in which you might want to stay connected to sport whilst you're an elite athlete, not falling out, falling into that void, and then suddenly working out how can I possibly reconnect again? And you, you talk quite a lot about um, having that quite the question that you pose yourself and other people about you know why you're getting out of bed today or what what's the reason do you do that every day I I mean, do. What, what today what happened today um yeah I just think about the connection actually I was excited because I'm going to have a new conversation today and it always expands my thinking um I knew you were going to bring me lots of intelligent questions so uh I was excited to think about what you would have taken from the book um and to yeah be able to to connect with you so that for me is, is kind of real highlight it's often around relationships new experiences new conversations something that is going to stretch me those are the things I often look forward to mm, connections and they, and they link into your two or three c's clarity uh, constant learning and connection is there a reason why why they kind of shine a little bit brighter than than some some other thoughts that you might have had they have absolutely evolved over this last 20 years in the work that I do they are the themes that always connect best whether I am working with a group of people on a leadership program or working developing a team or supporting people to think about the culture in their organization how they might change it I've just always come back to these and, and in fact for a while I was thinking right if I if I now write this book about success then you know um, that's what I'm going to be kind of writing about and there was a sort of aha moment by thinking I need to think a bit more about like hey let's get away from this narrow piece what do we need to get to and it's like well this is the stuff I use in my work this is what I do this is what is is the way to define a, a different way of doing things a long win approach so I almost didn't have that in mind when I started writing the book because I was so focused on this understanding and unpicking why we're so obsessed with success and how it's going wrong in lots of occasions. And then I thought, no, now we need to start thinking about how do we do it? These are the pillars that we need to get right. And they are also ways of helping us to 
not be on a tick box mode. So it's clarity in the sense of constantly clarifying. There's almost no organisation where you don't want to be constantly clarifying what matters. Um, and even some have greater clarity, some have less clarity. But actually, we want to be continually clarifying at the next layer. Whereas I think often we just assume it's clear to some people or we just say it once a year uh, and, and then we move on. So again, I, I just always find that a helpful starting point because you know, we're human beings and we always hear different things. We might have one person giving a talk to us. But if you then ask everyone coming out of it, what did you take from that? What was that talk about? You get literally some really different, varied um, takes on what it was about. And I find that so fascinating and so important to remember. that It's never clear to all of us. Um, Do you always have that then as a, as, a, as a thought process in your head, this kind of, kind of ingrained tick list with the three C's that when you're either going through a, a problem or you're talking to someone, you're thinking okay if we got clarity on this is there a connection here because i've just i've just done something i'm just about to say that you don't do in some podcasts i've listened and in some other stuff you're you wait you're a very good listener you obviously are taking in what that person's saying and then asking the right questions has that been a i've I've given you a two-part question here (laughs) but has that been a skill that you've always had I think we all develop that skill. Um, I think the curiosity is probably the other C that's a very personal C that that I take with me uh, in my life that um, is why I've kept thinking about this question of success, that that why I've sort of also thought of it from the different contexts and really wanted to help others to think differently. Um, And so that curiosity keeps you thinking, well, what else is happening here? I mean, the diplomatic world was a fascinating one for showing you all the time that what you what you might think others are thinking is not right and that you can't make assumptions in that area and that it's really really important not to come with set expectations um, and to constantly sort of check yourself and check those around you and and just yeah sitting in those multilateral negotiations where you're thinking well I think it's clear what we said but then when you go and ask others, they think our position is something else. Yeah. Oh, no, how's that possible? How can I be clearer? Um, and and realising so much of our work was just around clarifying what we want, what others want, constantly playing that back. And, of course, in a multilateral situation with lots of people around the table, that's very complex very quickly. Plus, you've got the role of interpreters who are translating language. So I loved that. It also felt sort of perpetually... Um, kind of bamboozled by uh, what are they thinking we're saying and what are we really saying and and therefore listening to others as well we come with that expectation of all oh, the Germans will say this and the US will say this and the Russians will say this but actually maybe they've changed since the last meeting and if we don't pick up that change then we stick ourselves back where we were and stop ourselves from moving on so you're desperate for those glimmers of change you're listening to hear what else might there be that gives me some hope we can move this really difficult situation forward so you you I think that was a a huge training ground in in listening understanding clarifying re-clarifying re-clarifying again and and always thinking what else is there here because at the moment we're stuck in a situation the negotiation isn't moving forward or the relationship with with a particular um another country or another government so so you're thinking well i need somewhere to move i've got to find that next place where we go um 
I can really only do that through listening because it's got to come from them. I can't push them somewhere. And again, we always had that rule that, not rule, that mantra that persuasion and influence is listening. It's not having the best idea, having the best solution, the best way forward. That actually pushes people away. You've just got to keep listening. Somewhere in there is, is a key to moving forward. Does that listening also include the non-verbal stuff as well? Massively. Listening to what's said, listen to what's not said. Ask questions to understand further. Because the first thing people say is the safest thing for them to say. And actually what you want to know is the least safest thing. Where will they go in three days' time or three weeks' time at midnight um, when you've got to get to an agreement on something? At that point, the sooner you can understand where might they be then, the more helpful that is to understand the potential and the direction you can get to. So absolutely, what's said, what's not said, what's between the words... And again, I mean, I studied languages. I think that gives you always that curiosity about what we mean by things. I I find it so fascinating when you come across concepts in another language that don't exist in your own. I think it's just, you know, it blows my mind that, of course, there's a different way of seeing this because you just think, well, people must see it like us. And so I'm constantly reminded that 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 isn't true. I think that's a really helpful um, way of thinking. Yeah, no, I mean, my small small time in living in Fiji, there was yes, the there was those cultural differences that goes beyond understanding the language or Google Translate. I I got to to take a learn to take a breath on everything because what's happening. My, I might think immediately from my English background it equals X, and mm. actually. I needed to take a breath, speak to a few people, and, and what's happened here is a very different reason for all of that. And lucky that you have your people around you that, that understand the culture and can act as those kind of translators. You also talk about trying to achieve in negotiation um, a win-win. Mm. And I'd love to know more about that because we're all constantly, at whatever level it might be, um, we're in constant negotiations um, on some level. So what do you mean by the, a, a win-win? The most difficult mindset in a negotiation, you don't move anywhere if people have a zero-sum game mindset where my success depends on you losing. I can only gain if you don't get what you want. And of course that exists a lot, um, particularly if people have been in conflict and have done horrible things to each other for any number of years, then that's almost the, the default mindset. I, I cannot be right for me and the people who support me if the person that we've been fighting against comes out of this positively. And so that's always the most destructive mindset and a very common one. And so actually a lot of our work, although on the one hand we would be often deep in the content of whatever it was we were negotiating, whether it was you know, a, a, a peace agreement or a reform in a particular area of government, actually it came down to the mindset of the people in the room. And our job was really as much psychological as anything else. And negotiations are largely psychological, I think. Um, it, it was about how do we shift that where people might realize that they will come out of it better. They will get more if they have a share in a bigger pie, if you like. But they have to accept that you're going to get a share in that pie too. But together we can be part of something much bigger than if one of us is king um, and the other one is defeated. We'll actually be king of a tiny, tiny amount of power or wealth or kingdom or whatever it is. It'll be a pile of rubble at that point by the time I've destroyed you. I'm then king of a pile of rubble. Great. That's really not going to... Uh, that can't be success. Um, so it's trying to have that sense of where do we want to get to? I mean, most obviously in, in Iraq... 
um, we were trying to help the country to, in some ways, become peaceful um, and get to a point where it could become prosperous again, having been such a, a strong economic um, country, a strong economy. Um, and whilst different militias are fighting, fighting out on the streets of, of Basra, all they were doing was destroying the city. So you have to sort of help, you know, we were just all the time we were trying to help the different factions, the different militias, the different leaders to see that it, whoever ends up as king is going to be king of a pile of rubble. Um, and actually, surely we want to all be part of a prosperous city where then, you know, life will be at a whole different level. You would be thriving. You'll have much more power and wealth than if you're left as king of, of, of nothing. So always this sort of mindset that it, it's prevalent in a lot of our thinking that this binary sense, this win-lose sense. And again, this is where we come back to that theme of, of winning, that we see it as only winning or losing when actually, well, maybe winning isn't as great as it sometimes is. And actually, maybe losing isn't so bad as we sometimes think. We polarize those two positions. We think winning is brilliant and heroic and wonderful wonderful and fulfills life forever and we think losing is the kind of the most awful you know tragedy and, and disaster and personal failure so I suppose it's almost trying to bring those two a little bit closer together and thinking do you know what it's actually the bit in the middle that matters most mm. and in your time as a um, working in the diplomatic service you you lived and you worked in some fairly hostile and chaotic environments you must have had some big takeaways and lessons. And I'm wondering, without wanting a, a lot of podcast people say, give us your number one. But there must be um, a lesson there that, that you've, you've had from that time that sticks out. Uh, gosh, that's really hard. It, it's that connection piece, I think, just about finding a way to connect with people. Um, you know, I'm, I, I kind of remember early on this ambassador saying that's that's giving me this advice. The most important thing is to connect with others. And there'll be lots of people where you feel you can't connect. And, you know, and I'd be in those situations. I'm thinking, how am I going to connect with this almighty, powerful American military general that I've got to talk to or this, you know, leader of a of a you know, Iraqi militia out fighting on the streets. How am I, this kind of middle-class English woman, going to connect with them? And, you know, he, his voice rang my ears saying, you just got to find a way. It might take you some time. That, that's your job is to find that connection. And I think that's my fascination with, you know, people and, you know, looking for a way to connect. And there always was something at some level, whether it was just, you know, most people have, you know, strong attachments to their family lives, to sport, um, to all sorts of things, places, geographical locations, books, music, art, all sorts of things. And finding those connections is brilliant because it enables you then to have some really difficult conversations. And that's what kind of makes life fun. That leads quite nicely to a, a really interesting passage as well in the book where you talked about management styles and how um, trust, uh, collaboration and inclusion are, are really important for you. And if I was to ask a, a wider question than that, I, I completely agree that to have trust of the people around you is massively important. How do you measure trust? So again, we're back into a, into a world where um, it's, a, it's not in a chart, it's not in a spreadsheet. Um, and it's interesting that if you, in various surveys recently, I mean, for a number of years now, chief executives say it's one of the most important things for performance success. And yet they're not really putting it as a priority because it's hard to measure. Yeah. 
So I actually think, you know, our, our, our sort of obsession with metrics, my starting point is just, uh, is actually not to have a, a formula, here you go, but to think about what does trust look like in your organisation? How do we co-create, if you like, together a way of measuring this? What are the sorts of stories that we want people to be telling? What sorts of behaviours will we be seeing? Um, how will people manage, you know, difficult conversations or conflict? So it, it is about having that lens on the interactions that happen. Um, we're back to yeah, human stories, really, uh, the way we connect with one another. Those are the things that, that tell us what are the sorts of relationships, what are the sorts of conversations that we have, particularly if we see things differently. How do we resolve that? How is there a way for us to find a path through that? Um, those are the scenarios and, and it requires us to get feedback at a deeper level. So this stuff doesn't come out in a staff survey. This doesn't come out if I just ask you, you know, do you trust me or do you trust the organisation? That, that's, you know, nonsense. We actually have to understand people at a deeper level. We have to understand how they connect to the role that they're doing and have those um, be able to think about the experience they're having and to care about the experience. So actually, it doesn't matter what your purely what your output is, how many sales you're making, whether you're hitting your targets. It matters to me how you're experiencing that on a day to day basis. So I care about what's happening today, not just what's happening when you show me the spreadsheet at the end of the month with your targets and I want you to define success today in a way that isn't purely about those targets that today is successful because I've had good interactions because I've been able to have some difficult conversations because I've been able to come and seek help on a really challenging issue because I've you know stretched myself in this way and I've been learning this aspect over here so it is you know defining success in a way that isn't outcome based yeah i I also resonated with another section when you talked about um, a music teacher, and I forget his name, that gave A pluses mm. to everybody. And, and that's my outlook on coaching, you know, because you, you often hear about an athlete might bring this baggage with them or might behave like this and start everyone at the top and, um, and allow them then to try to flourish. Also, one other area that kind of d- depressed me a little bit in the book was the story you told about... Um, at the end of the Olympic Games when everyone's flying home and the medalists, the gold medalists are, are wheeled out the front and the photo's there. And I hadn't occurred to me that there's obviously other athletes on that, on that flight <laughs> and they're literally like ushered out the back. Um, we talk a lot about the positive aspects of Team GB. So I've seen it um, at the last Olympics with teams and athletes that achieved way more than perhaps they should have done but the effect of being around the Team GB elevated them, you know, because they were around all these amazing athletes and there was a real feel-good vibe. I, I wonder what happens when those athletes come back from the track or from a competition and they've underachieved. We talk about that positive and how that negative. And if you've got any kind of dreams or aspirations for when everyone comes back from Tokyo and they land, what happens? Yes, it's, it's ironic. It's Team GB and we have this phrase in sport, we win as a team, we lose as a team. Mm. So you would think that the whole team would come off um, as a team because, in fact, often people who finish lower down, they played an important role within their squad of, you know, again, in, in, if I think to the, to the rowing squad, it's, it's often the fact you're competing day in, day out with such a, a kind of impressive squad that enables some to, to get to that next level and perhaps they're the ones that go and win medals. But they only do that because they've been in this competitive squad with lots of other people who who didn't get to go and win the medals so they have played a role in it and we 
dishonour that, we ignore that, we discard that role, we devalue that role by ignoring them. So, you know, I, I also think if we want to separate out as we should, you know, you, you, as, a, as a person you don't have more value because you've won a medal. It's a great achievement. I want to celebrate it. Don't get me wrong. I think it's brilliant and I think we should all be striving. I'm, I'm not anti doing our best. It's the interpretation we put on it. Um, everybody there has, you know, has gone out to give their best. Do you know what? Some events are tougher than others. Um, some have incredible world record holders in other, in, in other countries. Some have had bad luck. Some have got injured. Sometimes a referee or an umpire has actually made a slightly dodgy decision in some of those sports where it's not clear cut. And yet they are, you know, dis- they are treated differently on the basis of a result. And I just don't think that is necessary. It creates a, a kind of a, a, an awkwardness, a division. I think when we, when we see the cameras that have the photo of that front step that the, that the medalists come down. What I want is a, to actually have had a camera, and that's almost what I'm trying to do in the book, you know, a few metres back that shows the whole plane because people don't think about it. But that means we are, we are subconsciously telling people these people don't matter, the ones that come off the back of the plane. We don't think about them, we don't talk about them. And that's, that's wrong. We should be celebrating them as well. We can't only have a team... It's nonsense where people only win, but it's almost like we think that's what we should be doing. Mm. But that, that doesn't make sense either. Is that where we want to get to? That, that's illogical, isn't it? That we would ever have a team that's only got gold medal winners in it. So what are we trying to achieve through this? And what's the message we're sending to spectators and fans and to those athletes who actually, we want them to come back and think, yeah, I'm going to go for another Olympiad. And, you know, and, and I, I, I'm good enough to talk to the gold medalist in my team who I was training with for the last four years. But suddenly now they're separated from me. They used to be my mate, but suddenly, you know, they're, they're somehow better than me. That's just not healthy, is it? This was another conversation that questioned your thinking and your views. I'm in a lucky and privileged position where I see what happens beyond the stadiums and below the line. The sacrifices that are taken by athletes, staff and those around them. But I also get to see how programmes are run, what is prioritised, what is valued, where leaders put their energy and thinking. You want to be part of a group, an organisation where you can thrive, but you will eventually leave and down the track you also want to feel its value. It hasn't downgraded or diluted you. You haven't sacrificed your values or your wider societal opportunities. In fact, the opposite has occurred. By being part of that place, it has added lasting value to you, varnished you to both shine brighter and to enhance for longer. I think there is more focus than ever on that now and understanding that just because some things aren't easy to measure, we shouldn't still prioritise them. That it's not just about the first place or the victor's school assembly speech. The journey, the discovery, the long-term benefits outside the outcome of a medal, they count. Kath's outlook is one we should all listen carefully to. As she says at the end of her book, it is about exploring the possibilities of what winning could mean for us all. The show notes will set you up with some great further learning and reading to anything we signposted or referenced. And you can find those at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for some of the messages I've already had about last week's episode. They're always appreciated. And if you want to have a listen to that or the first series, then you'll find us on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcast, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. This has been the Ben Ryan Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>